0: Okay, welcome everyone to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art tonight. And this is our um, Wednesday Nights at ACA program, and this is the second in our soy- series of talks for New 11. Uh, I'm Caitlin Malcolm, the Education and Public Programs Manager, and tonight we have the New 11 curator Hannah Matthews speaking in conversation with Dan Moynihan, Mark Hilton, yes, a big cheer for Mark, and also Fiona Aberquer. Will you please make them very welcome?
1: Dan's becoming an old hand at the yeah. stage work, aren't you?
2: Pretty much. Very natural <laughs> and not nervous at all.
1: Not even a touch. Um, so there's three series, three events of Artist Talks happening as part of the New Eleven exhibition. And um, the first one was held last Wednesday with uh, a number of the interstate artists who have participated in the exhibition. Right. This evening, we have three Melbourne-based artists So welcome them, please. We've had a week to recover. I'm sure that's not quite enough. But um, we'll do our best to um, make sense, I suppose, of all the thoughts that have grown out of the last 12 months of making work and then presenting it as part of the new 11 exhibition. I'm going to start with Fiona. I hope that's okay. Um, Fiona's work in the exhibition, which hopefully you've all had the opportunity to visit, is um, actually takes place in two environments. She's designed and created two display units, one which appears in close relationship with Dan Moynihan's work in Gallery One, and the other one which is presented in Gallery Four, which houses Justine Williams' work. And um, they're sort of seemingly minimal works, Um, they're relatively subtle in their presence, but they they belie a very um, complex framework of both making and designing um, and relationships. And I'm hoping that that's what we can kind of unpack this evening. Mm -hmm. Um, Anthony White has written a really great text about Fiona's work and Fiona's practice in the New Eleven catalogue, which is coming out next week, I believe. And in it, he begins his discussion about your understanding of the art object as being part of a larger display. And I guess this could be read as the object as part of a larger display. So whether it's in the gallery um, exhibition environment or whether Mm -hmm. it perhaps be in the retail environment. Um, And when I was reading his text and when we've talked about your work, I've understood that reading to mean looking at the object as part of a larger kind of visual understanding. So the object in relation to other artworks in the exhibition context, or in relation to the architecture of those spaces, and also the material and palette that takes place. That approach is kind of quite complex. It speaks very broadly. Yes. And I think it probably involves um, critiques of
3: various kinds, but I wondered if perhaps you could talk about that first. Certainly, thank you. <laughs> um, well, initially when I start and um, I may as well just start by saying that my practice is actually, one could describe it as an exhibition practice. Um, I'm tending to understand my practice now as a project-based practice. So when I enter um, an invitation such as um, the one of new, then uh, a series of steps um, immediately occur and and one is to do with the site and the context of um, how ACCA, you know, is within the woodmarsh construct, and also within the type of exhibition um, series, which is new. So from that onset, I think there was a, um, uh, there was a obviously uh, an interior that I was going to be contending with, an interior which is based on contemporary architecture interiors. Um, and a very complex one and how to situate works within these environments. New in itself is really kind of quite known for um, giving artists an enormous opportunity and sometimes um, the biggest platform of their career to develop um, almost pavilion-like style exhibitions. And I think I was very much intent on trying to dismantle that element of presenting something on a large individual scale. (laughs) And I guess I'm really not talking about the materiality yet, but... No,
1: no, no, this is... Fun. I mean, for me, the work um, was made in relationship to the site in the context of new. Yes. But you also chose to make it in response to the relationships which form as part of being part of a group exhibition. Yes. When the work arrived in the space, though, it, it was um, a balance, balancing act, I suppose, of how to kind of... for it
3: to address both things. Mm, Definitely. Um, and as Hannah pointed out, there was, um, there's obviously two artists that I've actually engaged with on this project, and one is is Dan. And so one of my structures is designed to be in relationship to Dan's work. And I guess the overarching concept of the structures themselves, one is a movable wall, I've called it a movable wall, it can be viewed as a screen object, and one is like a low-lying, um, I guess, occasional table is another term I've called it, which is also like another museum device, which is like a trolley. So one structure being a movable wall is in quite close proximity to Jan's work, and the other trolley is intersected in amongst Justine's installation. So these devices um, really are just di- display devices, which allowed me to then um, deliver other components of the project, which was all considered in relationship and in dialogue with the two other artists. Yep.
1: But I guess the objects themselves really yep. reflect um, a very complex and involved process that is perhaps not uh, tangible in viewing mm-hmm. the actual finished objects. Exactly. And it's also, um, I think it speaks not only to this conversation about viewing art or viewing the object as part of a larger display, so it becomes more of a design or a display item. Yep. But in making those um, display units for new, you've mm. also drawn on the expertise and the knowledge of other designers yep. and makers. And I don't necessarily think that everyone becomes aware of those relationships yeah. and contributions when viewing the object. So, And I know it's part of your practice. It's a very strong and ongoing part of your practice. So I mm-hmm. wondered if you might speak a little bit more about those relationships and the steps and I guess why you choose to
3: undertake them when when many people are just working solo in the studio. Certainly. Um, Well, I think when we first met Hannah, I was just about to undertake a a project for my gallery at the art fair. And I have a parallel career as a mold maker and casting technician, which keeps me incredibly busy. And then I take certain block periods of time off to produce projects. So um, I think at this time when the invitation came up, Uh, I just thought, oh my gosh, another long period by myself um, working incredibly hard and I thought about new, I thought about the type of um, opportunity it provides artists and I thought about the best way to experience new and that really came down to perhaps developing relationships. So it was more about, not the fact that I didn't want to do it alone, but it was more, I was more interested in Reflecting back upon this time and what would be the most interesting experience to um, to be had, and that was probably perhaps to get to know a couple of the other artists, if not all of the artists, was one idea at one point. And kindly, Dan and Justine agreed to a very um, obscure proposal, which was incredibly brave um, of them. And there was a process of whining and dining, and you know, I'll never forget walking around Fitzroy and watching you drink Coke and I <laughs> having gelati and, you know, it was... And, and Dan was a stranger to me and so was Justine. And um, I was flying up to visit Justine and hang out with her and it was by the fact that they were just sheerly very open people that um, allowed the type of collaborative and participatory kind of experience to be had. But outside of Dan and Justine, I had collaborated before with um, Jan van Skyke from um, Minifi van Skyke Architects, and along with Darsha Maurice, um, one of the most gorgeous girls I've met in a long time, who's a brilliant pattern maker and fashion designer. And, um, you know, two friends who are also artists, um, Vanessa White and Meredith Turnbull, who were my artist actors, um, who participated in a photo shoot. So there was, um, along with that, a, a friend who's a, uh, you know, a tiler and also a special effects artist. And so there was just a... It, the, the crew kind of ended up being almost like a, um, a film production and I've also worked in film before as a um, production more maker technician. So I think there's a sense because I have this parallel career, I like to develop skills as I progress with each new project and um, I don't think I ever really produce the same type of material outcome twice within any project it can move from sewing and stitching to um, just researching a different type of molding or casting product but it's mm. it's always fairly different of recent periods there has been a very big interest in fashion and fashion design in the last couple of years but by and large I you know I'm very interested in process and materiality, and I don't think I'd pursue projects unless they were challenging. So yeah.
1: I think it's incredibly, I mean, certainly when we first met and started talking about your practice, I found it incredibly inspiring that you do choose to edu- educate yourself, basically, with mm. every project, whether it be a material or a technique. Yeah. Um, that's really putting yourself out there in terms of accumulation of knowledge, which, is, which I find very exciting. Um, but I suppose in terms of the more peer-to-peer relationships, particularly that you had with Dan and Justine in this context. So yeah. outside of the sort of series of pseudo-dates that you guys undertook I'm blushing. There was a lot of <laughs> blushing, I think. Um, I wonder if you could reveal a little bit, I suppose, of the steps that, that sort of took place after those conversations. Because the photographic documentation, which is actually displayed on these display units, yes. and the fashion attire that Dasha and yourself have kind of created, yes. have all been informed by those conversations. And I think there is some um, focus in terms of what kind of fashion attire you've made, and how the models are kind of presented um, in the performance mm. that are, you know, that, that are particular and have been researched by you and have fed from those conversations with Dan. And I think people would. Pr- you know, would be interested to kind of hear where that impetuous has come from.
3: Certainly. Um, well, the discussions, it's, it's, it's kind of a sensory response, isn't it, really, in some ways. It's um, spending time with someone and getting to know them, but asking, I think I gave Dan a myriad of probably about 40 questions on fashion. You know, long leg, wide leg, fashion. how many, you know, co- you know, collars, belts, you know, numerous fashion questions. <laughs> And believe it or not, you were very particular. I was really surprised and uh, really? Imp- impressed, very impressed. You knew exactly what was going down with uh, your desires for fashion. And um, and I think also too, it was an opportunity which is very strange, which is part of the whole, um, I guess, concept of the project is to see perhaps the direction that Dan would have liked to re-represent his, his installation or his structure with um, two people who may appear like their art viewers engaging with the artwork, and they're actually wearing a clothing attire which is being directed by Dan, but has gone through a minimalist fashion directive, which is my own. So, um, Dan had, you know, an opportunity to edit um, the fashion garments about four times, but you know it, it came down to really a pretty cut and dry. It was
2: very minimal.
3: Yeah.
1: It was from the but hair it... to the makeup to the clothes. Oh, the, the, the I mean, hair
3: styling was. The quite... was um, yeah. The... Oh, that, that's a key. Yes. <laughs> um, very important. I actually forgot to mention Sweet Caroline, um, the hair salon who um, so generously engaged the. Fabulous friends of mine, and so for Dan in particular, it was a comb over, so it was a comb over for girls, <laughs> which was yeah, uh, yeah. nice. It's and just a dream of mine. Yeah, <laughs> but also every all the actual the materiality you were very particular about, and yeah. um, you know, there's one component that you really didn't uh, didn't like that got yeah. axed pretty pretty straightforwardly. So, um, yeah, an unusual process.
1: An unusual process. And, Dan, and, and
2: Unusual, ha- but it was very easy at the same time. Well, I was It gonna, all went very smooth.
1: I was going to ask you about the outcomes. So, after these conversations, when you actually... I mean, in the space now, the clothing items are actually displayed. They're very soft.
2: <laughs> yes. Really.
1: I, I, no, I What I'm wondering is, um, how did you feel about the un- outcome of representation from the com- based on the conversations that you'd had?
2: I think it's a a great outcome just um, to see the result when you're not really sure during the process Mm. of collaboration how things are going to turn out. And then to have that sort of input as well was really... It's a nice thing to be asked. And then um, to see the end result, which is theirs, is great. Mm. And I think it's a good result.
1: No-one could disagree.
3: I mean, I I also think because there was elements where... because there was an actual subject matter that I researched uh, across um, fashion history over, you know, four different centuries. And it went through um, a series of, I guess, my dislikes and likes in regards to how I found those aspects of that research interesting. Um, But what was curious, when Vanessa and Meredith were actually wearing the garments, there was a very real sense that they were wearing hand-knit socks, for instance. One of the garments was very heavy. The other one was gauze. It was kind of related to ideas that we were talking about, but it actually physically affected how they were in the space, which, you know, was also a component. And the same with Justine's, who kind of chose um, evening sportswear. So, and and patternation and um, there was a whole range. It was kind of enormous, her, her interests, um, which got directed through her designs. But yeah, that when the girls were actually dressed up, you know, that was, yeah, very much affecting their, their orientation.
1: And what, were the, um, what was the sort of instructive or directive or preparation in terms of, you know, research that both yeah. Meredith and Vanessa
3: Oh, um, I came across this, uh, well, I was just interested because I've done a photo shoot once before where I wasn't really well prepared to direct um, a friend who was posing. Um, and I learnt very quickly that, you know, I wouldn't do that again. Mm-hmm. So I went through researching, um, I guess, acting books, really, and I came across this great 1977 text by um, Eric Morris called No Acting, Please, and it's a a theory based on uh, revolutionary approaches to acting and living where it's um, beyond the method. So it's about being in a space and not acting. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, getting to a point where um, you're asking yourself what... What is really real for you and how you're responding in in relationship to that text which we all read and did a workshop on over a couple of days. We're also very interested in also art critique in terms of um, you know I've gone through a couple of art institutions um, in my undergraduate and um, honours and master's degrees in terms of how groups of people critique artwork. Mm and um, engage in either student activities or exhibitions. And so there was a bit of borrowing from the art world and a bit of borrowing from, um, I guess, you know, the acting world.
1: world. Mm -hmm. And I guess a final comment that sort of draws on both of you is I understand um, the fashion attire that you've actually focused on, which has given rise from the conversation with Dan, is funeral attire. Mm -hmm. And has that grown out of a particular incident or has that also kind of grown out of I guess, conversations about where your your work down in the exhibition was heading in terms of, um, you know, I guess, escapers' paradise or afterlives, yeah, or has that just
2: occurred? It's just, it was more coincidental that it was that way. It's a good coincidence. Um, when Fiona initially asked me my ideas and then we started talking, I just started kind of ranting about this incident that I had at work, and it was to do with funerals and attire, wearing what you wear at funerals, so... And then it just went from there. Mm -hmm. So that was the basis for
1: it. It's a pretty strong coincidence in the final outcome. Yeah, it was good. (laughs) I guess
2: maybe I was thinking about that during the process of thinking about what I was making, and that's why it came out.
3: It was also a very strange situation that happened to you that was a bit baffling, and so it was a story that was... Yeah. could not believe what happened to me kind of story. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it's probably not really appropriate to share. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In it. this context.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. OK, well, thank you. Thank you. And, Dan, um, we might continue to talk more about your work, because there was lots of time in the making of it for the thinking about it. Do you want to talk a little bit about how, um, I guess, the hours that you sort of spent in the back workshop at Acker and in the studio in the actual kind of recreation of this sort of vision or image that you had and that you wanted to remake for the space?
2: It was, um <clears throat> during the process of building and making the work it was apparent that I didn't have the space and I was moving studios so um, I was fortunate enough to um, recycle a lot of material and to use the space here at AKA to construct what I had proposed
1: you spent a lot of time in there
2: yeah it was a lot of coming and going it was just Basically from the initial outset, it was just about time management for uh-huh. me uh-huh. and pull, pulling all the ideas in together and making sure I had time to get it done.
1: Because you think it was the, the layout of the spaces that you came up with, so the, sort of the corridor and the circular room itself, was it the layout of the space that ended up determining the work or vice versa? Because there was a period of time when we were playing with the layout of the space, yeah. basically dealing with the parameters of the space and budget and what have you.
2: Well, the, the initial concept was there and then I built a framework around that and then pretty much just worked from the outside back in. Yeah. So constructed the rooms first and then made the details to a, an appropriate size to fit within the space.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just took a long... I mean, it's, there's a lot of effort that goes into that work. The build-up is, is really... You do create a journey for people. You create, which draws actually, I suppose, um, on the institution experience. So entering the gallery and then encountering a corridor, which could appear, I suppose, in any kind of gallery. And then, if one chooses, they can they can either walk past this unmarked door or kind of choose to actually touch what might or might not be an artwork, and enter into a kind of um, a kind of I guess, I suppose, a kind of utilitarian vocational space of a cleaner's closet. Yep. And from there, sort of step through, a, through another threshold into another experience. I mean, there's three sort of types of thresholds that I suppose you've created. And with a lot of effort and detail going into the experience of each one and culminating in this kind of hysterical, tropical kind of room,
0: that which when the, exp-
1: well, when the experience <laughs> subsides, when the experience subsides, you're a little bit, I don't know, I've had various experiences. I've felt like deflated. I felt kind of euphoric. You know, it's been easy to kind of, like, you know, daydream. It's been nice just to kind of sit down and, like, you know, play with the sand. Watching, actually, not only watching children, but, you know, when people go in there and have a one-on-one experience, it's quite sort of something to see.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's the whole idea of creating these different thresholds, as you say, and paths to go through the work. There's different options. But the, the end result is you end up at that last moment. So it's a way of creating... Make, maybe making people work to get the end result. Sort of they have to work their way through and not knowing if they are allowed to go in there or if it's right to go through, but then maybe going past it and seeing the construction and realising, well, there is something there, there must be a way through.
1: Without being cliched, I suppose that's a little bit like life, one could argue. Totally. (laughs) but I, I wonder about the imagery that you chose to recreate in that circular room, where that came from, whether that's been like a daydream, whether that's been taken from a postcard or a calendar or...
2: Yeah, it's it's got all those cliche elements, and I wanted, I really wanted the, those cliche elements with the, you know, with every comic or cartoon, you have a, an island, a palm tree, there is, you know, eight, nine times out of 10, there's a skeleton there, so... Or a beach I think babe it was appropriate to put a skeleton and then with all my other work my previous work it's always I've always put myself into the role so again that was an, an opportunity for me to put myself into the work just to use the cliche but then just make it myself
1: but this time you also cho- chose to include your voice in the work which is mm. quite an experience when you have that fir- hear that first recording of your own voice and it really doesn't sound like you per se.
2: Well that's good (laughs) because yeah that was a real struggle because it was something I wanted to do and something I wanted to add and for it to be really subtle and then in the process of recording and singing those songs that are playing on the Discman I really didn't enjoy that experience. I can I love singing in the car and that sort of thing to myself but actually hearing the recording was really unnerving. So it was a case of making it, doing it, putting it on, and then continuing with the work and forgetting that that was there. Yeah. Otherwise I would have said, no, <laughs> we'll cut it, throw it out. So.
1: But sound plays quite an important role in the whole experience. And with lots of your works, that's quite a sort of sensorial overload. Yeah. Um, well,
2: I think this is maybe the first show where I've employed sound. hmm um, it's all the other details are there and smells are there and those sorts of elements are there the from heat. previous works yeah. and then it was the space just gave me the opportunity to introduce sound and also light too particularly this time around plays a big
1: factor. It certainly lends an element of kind of baked, baked environment.
2: Yeah well the idea was to have a few different rooms which were darker and then so you sort of get lost through there, then you hit the light and it's a totally different experience. Different feelings were you're meant to get from each room or each passageway.
1: And tell us a little bit about the selection of songs um, that are included on The Discman, which, as I understand, reference um, the Desert Island Discs program, which, which runs on UK radio.
2: Yeah, there's that element and it's just that whole thing and conversation of if you end up in that conversation of, well, you know, five things you would take on a desert island or, you know, five songs, five movies, all that stuff. It's kind of, again, cliche kind of questions and um, I decided to incorporate that into the with the island because it was part of the cliche. And um, initially I tried to pick, you know, five favourite songs, but it's just it's impossible to do. So the five songs really just came out of the through the process of creating the work. So there were a couple of songs I discovered on YouTube, trying to find other songs. There were songs i just found a tape in the car and discovered that way. And then, you know, maybe one or two are our favourite songs. So, yeah, it was but just... But I
1: also know it's a question you've asked, not like a deal-breaker question, but it's a question you've asked of others yeah, socially. Well, and...
2: Yeah, it just... well creating the work and making the work for new is just so consuming that mm. it just spills out into everything else you do so socially you just talk about your work and ask questions related to your work and mm. pretty much that's that's it so it was a natural thing to ask other people and um, you know i i was considering making compiling lists as i went through but it just it ended up being what it is
1: and it's representative of this time and state which is good
2: yeah it's totally it's basically from the initial invitation to the last day of install, it's, they're the songs that were with me the whole time. Strange, <laughs> there's, it's a strange mix. It's
1: quite a good mix though. Um, Dan, the other thing that has always struck me about your work as well is this real um, enjoyment of making and recreating things, you know, to the you know, finest kind of meticulous detail. And when we, um, you know, started talking 12 months ago about you and about the ideas that you might want to realise, you know, you were very keen to increase the scale in which you were going to work this time round. But we also kind of had a conversation about the idea of image and kind of realising an image into sort of an experience. Um, And I suppose with a number of your works that I've seen, I've been very conscious of... I guess, an influence of cinema and the presence of narrative, but also um, a very enjoyable sense of humour as well, which sort of permeates a number of works that you've made. In, you know, this is, I mean, it is the first time perhaps at this scale, but you've also worked at quite a large scale before, perhaps not kind of as complex with the various elements, but where, where is the sort of, or what is the satisfaction, I suppose, in taking that image in your head and actually not only realising it, but actually fabricating, making it yourself.
2: Well, um, it's kind of like being able to tell a story or, through details and just pulling all those details in together and then as many details as you, you can think of that help describe the story because people are just going to go through it. They're just going to see it once off. So... Having all that stuff to distract them helps them to think about the story a little bit more as they go through
1: so i thi- i mean i w- I think it would be fair to say that there is an amount of autobiography in your work
2: yeah, there always is well I'm pretty much always present in there so <laughs>
1: even as a eight year old yeah yep. <laughs> um,
2: just certain things keep reappearing, and um it's all s- self referential and um a lot of personal jokes as well. I kind of laugh at my own jokes a lot. So it's, I can put a little things in that are going to make me laugh, which make the install a lot easier and Enjoyable. less stressful, yeah. And then yeah. if someone picks up on that, that's really good. If people don't get it, that's OK that it's there.
1: A final question, considering the sort of the scale and the sort of um, eye for, the cinematic kind of eye for detail, who'd play you in the story of your life?
2: um have to be Brian Brown.
1: <laughs> Cuz he's a funny bugger too.
2: Oh, it's just <laughs> I've been boring. mistaken for him once or twice before. That's <laughs> true. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. Thank you.
1: <laughs> you get the gorgeous wife with that too. It's good. It's natural. <laughs> um, OK, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> to slightly more serious um, considerations, I suppose. So, Mark, you're...
4: I'm waiting I'm waiting for the segue. I know, I can tell
1: you're like, ah! What's
4: you're... The segue going to be?
1: Well, oh I guess God from the God God kind God of brown. humorous to the dark, but... Um, it's
4: not that dark.
1: Your work appears in the start of Gallery 1 and under the title of More Normal... And it's three components. It's a, a bone sculpture and a sort of high relief made in resin.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And then three sump oil paintings on paper. Yes. As always with your works, material is a very strong sort of sense of material. Yep. But the, continu- the strongest continuation with the other elements of your practice is this focus on the human condition. Mm-hmm. And the kind of darker, more potentially bleaker sides of the human condition than perhaps we've been talking about already this evening. That's not a bad segue.
4: No, no, that works.
1: So, in the past, apathy, the notion of apathy, mm-hmm. malaise, has kind of uh, permeated a number of your works. But in this um, in this series of works, which have really been completed over the last year, essentially, yep. there's more of a focus on morality and ethics and, um, I guess, survival. Do yep. you want to talk about those ideas because they become, um, they're the centre of the work, but they're considered sure. through biology, through sure. culture and sociology.
4: Sure. sure. Yeah, take it away.
1: Yeah, take it away.
4: Um, well, I don't, have, I don't have the answers, but... Um, you have thoughts. I have thoughts, yep. and hopefully the viewer comes on the journey. But, um, yeah, ap- apathy was a starting point, but I don't think I've really um, been able to deal with that subject um, pictorially as such. But um, yeah, it's more about, in the past, it's about finding yourself in certain situations and how someone finds themselves in those situations and how they act in relation to um, what's happening. Um, this body of work is more, I suppose, more focused, more, more of a universal concept or concepts as such. Um, it was dealing with um, looking at subjectivism and and objectivism and how we operate uh, or how I operate subjectively in the world and I would su- suggest that most of us if not all of us do operate that way uh, that leads us into you know if 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 we observe what we observe and and as we're observing it it changes so how one interacts with those different aspects that leads into Um, conversations um, about truth and then which inevitably moves on to belief you know, I mean it was funny I was thinking the other day that I was I was um, a witness to this um, fatal hit and run um, a couple of years ago and um, you know I had to give evidence and, and I was there with my then girlfriend we were both in the car and this other car was coming towards us on the wrong side of the road and it it shot past us, we thought nothing of it. And as we were heading down the road, we saw two shoes in the middle of the road and then about 10 metres down there, there was a there was a boy in a gutter. And um, we're driving past, and, you know, we have to give evidence and the, the, the cliched cop can only type with two index fingers and all that stuff. But the court case came up and we, obviously we had to swear this oath somewhat that we tell the truth. And, um, you know, my, my um, recollection of it was the guy was driving a f- um, four-door sedan and her recollection was that it was a four-wheel drive. It's and different. she was wrong, I was right.
1: Of course, I can know. imagine, yeah.
4: Um, but, I mean, yeah, that... Difference. That, that point of difference is simply, you know, a, a, a great starting point to a conversation, you know, about truth and then it creeps into belief. And then a person's belief is really, it's a really tricky area to begin with. Um, and then that, to, to jump um, further, looking at um, um, human beliefs and how they operate and in what capacity they operate and in what environment, whether they affect the environment they inhabit or whether the environment affects them and how that duality plays out continuously um, leads into some would say a, quite a negative um, situation in, in relation to this work, but um, that was the interest at the time. Um, moving on from that, um, looking at cultural stereotypes, um, especially with the work that was hanging that's hanging on the wall, creeps into conversations about political correctness and how PC is used as um, by both sides. Of the argument, um, either as a trap um, to set something up to fail, um, and eventually you you end up with these stereotypical viewpoints. Um, I know this is kind of this is very skirting of the issue, but
1: no, no, it's that they very complex. there's
4: there's this certain there's a certain point, and I suppo- I suppose that PC has a lot to answer for in in accessing this idea of slippage in setting someone up as a, as a victim or an oppressor or that, that idea of a victim is the oppressor. That's the way they, they operate. Whether it's, a, whether it's a late night at a bar telling a racist joke to your close friends that, that gets a chuckle or it's, you know, to, an, to a further extent, you know, levels of bigotry that end up in... In some sort of race war or genocide, or those those aspects, um, these slippages can happen so 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 um, subtly, and uh, there are certain jokes around derogatory jokes around the work that, that is. Comedy is a great vehicle to skirt around that that aspect of what is PC and what is not PC. and those
1: slippages are quite fluid too they shift oh, they shift the constantly mm.
4: constantly and that leads into an, another conversation about teams and and the teams you know that one operates with shift just as fluidly
1: you mean in terms of community or collectives of or groups of people or? groups of
4: people or, yeah. or even here you know my my team would be on par with you but Outside of this situation, a different situation where I could change teams. Yeah, you know, and that 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 is so fluid. It happens. It happens every minute of the day. But it's about it's about what what I suppose what I'm trying to understand is what what the outcome is.
1: Well, what, is the outcome represented in some of the imagery you've chosen, or the imagery well, that you've chosen? How does that fit into these kind of thoughts thoughts that you've been having?
4: Well, I, I mean, I think. I mean, I suppose all this conversation is basically trying to work it out for myself in that sense. The imagery is, um, you know, I was, I mean, it's like you could watch a Dave Chappelle episode and that he's hilarious, but um, cruel. sorry, but
1: sometimes cruel.
4: Uh, very much so. <laughs> but, but why is, you know, it's like why, you know, what I find funny could be very different to someone else finds yeah. funny and, and why is that and what, how does that, how does that work? Um, and does it work because he's a black? Or should I say African-American? Or should I say Negro? Or I won't say the other N-word, but all these, all these situations, which I would say PC has got a lot to answer for in relation to that minefield that's set up, that you turn one way, and then, and then maybe you correct yourself five years down the track, because that's, that's, that's how the ball rolls. Um, It's hard to keep on the the right side of PC because you're not supposed to. That's the whole point of it.
1: Well, I think what you've actually achieved in the selection and representation of that imagery is that ambiguity and sometimes ambivalence. it is. is. Because the suckling pig should be like an image of, um, I guess, nourishment and nurturing, and yet at the same time, it kind of feels like... um, Sucking. Just taking a life force out of something, basically. And also the portrait, which, um, you know, on first impressions could and probably should be someone in a military outfit has kind of been... You know, the detail has kind of been... Concierge. Well, it has been moved into something that could be retail, service industry. Yeah. Um, you know, they're quite ambiguous in their intent, I suppose. Sure. But the text that you've decided to include on the third piece, perhaps yeah. you could talk a little bit more about... Yeah, ..about sure. that choice of choice of terms.
4: Well, that's kind of... I mean, that's... That, that's trying to work out, I suppose, a certain, you know... The idea of what what the idea of the game is and the idea, what I would say, of the, the end result of the game, how you win the game, is your best possible outcome for genetic survival. So all this other construct that happens in relation to that, that's kind of the end result in, in, in some way that, that I, I think we're um, consciously or subconsciously trying to achieve somewhat. Um, so, um,
1: But that seems to be a very conscious the kind text. of affirmation yeah, of how yeah. you choose to live, whereas people might sort of choose to be more ignorant about their actions.
4: Well, I, I, I don't know about ignorant. Maybe they just choose differently. I mm-hmm. don't know. But I would argue that maybe that would be subconsciously that it's, it's, that's how it's going to end. You know, whether you... You know, it's kind of like working out what... Instead of just... You know, you just go ahead and you make a decision, what... what, You know, like you're doing a risk and reward analysis on on every decision that you make, whether it's you're going to buy pasteurised milk or non-pasteurised milk or, you know, you're going to go for this job as opposed to that job. You're going to do this show or not do this show, you know. All these things, there's there's an outcome that you're trying to achieve. So, to be so bold as to um, totally go um, um, to the furthest degree, the outcome, which originates from a a botanist, um, Lyle Watson, is the three principles that, that he's arguing that give you the best possible genetic outcome. You follow these three principles, which happen in society consistently, I would argue, if not all the time, you be nasty to outsiders, you be nice to insiders and you cheat whenever possible. He's talking about, he's talking about your genes. That then creeps into another conversation about um, um, human nature versus nature. You know, nature doesn't believe in ethics or morality, it just exists, you know, it fights it out for itself. Human nature tries to constantly distance itself from that situation. It tries to keep a lid on it, but it, can't, it can never extinguish it. And I suppose with the work, it's looking at these ideas of slippage in relation to the, that concept. That's what I'm investigating. And I think you can click on any newspaper any day and see these slippages happen every day. It's a very common thing. So it's getting back to that distancing of, of um, nature. I remember... Um, Catherine Hepburn says to Boga in um, uh, The African Queen, we're, we're put on this world to try and rise above nature, you know. So it's a right. pretty, you know, um, normal concept, normal being the wrong word. But
1: well, I think as I mentioned maybe last week, you know, a lot of... A number of the words that appear in that text that you've taken from the Lyle Watson um, writings actually appears in the, in the introductory paragraph to the first issue of the New Australia
4: mm.
1: newspaper. And, um, you know, for those who...
4: We, we planned that. <laughs> That's those, another collaboration.
1: For those who don't know, very briefly, um, the New Australia movement formed in 1892 and basically was an offshoot of the early Australian labour movement. So the Labour Party formed and the New Australia movement also formed at the same time. And they were very much interested in a more socialist ideology or couched sure. in a socialist ideology and ended up moving two kind of boatloads of people ended up going to Paraguay to kind of establish this socialist utopia, which, um, you know, ruptured within four years. But in the introductory text, it's talking about insiders and outsiders. Mm. It's talking Mm. about establishing, you know, I guess the ideal culture.
4: Sure, yeah.
1: So 1893.
4: Yeah.
1: When was Lyle Watson text written? Do Um, you
4: know? Quite recently, I would say... 90 in the 90s, late 90s. Yeah,
1: I mean it's very obviously very common language for that. Yeah,
4: yeah, it's not. I mean they're probably not even Lyle's principles. They're probably um, um, someone else's. But he's a strong um, advocate of that.
1: You've presented them though on like a side, like a highway, sort of. Is it like like a religious sign or something? White box, which is not what they originally appeared. No, I presume. No, but you put them together.
4: It's a happy accident. Yeah. Yeah, a
1: decision, another decision.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, like, trying not to... Well, there's, there's kind of like this idea that, um, you know, um, differences of belief, I would say there's probably three main principles where you can create this point of difference of belief. And, you know, it's, it's political creed, it's nationalism, or it's religion, you know. Um, they, they are the bearers of of difference and, and maybe, maybe those conversations are the, the originators of these slippages. Maybe you could take it back to that. I don't know. It's, that's probably what I'm trying to work out myself.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. The last question before I ask a sort of more general question of, of all three of you is Maria Chemarkin has written a text on your work for the catalogue and I think it's actually the best text about your work that I've read. Can you talk a little bit about Maria's background and why you were so keen for her to write on your work? What she would bring to that conversation?
4: Well, I, th- I think she brings her own history, her own history to that conversation. She, I think, uh, I think she left the Soviet Union when she was about six, but has a strong um, connection to that and grew up in that that as- that that um, environment. Um, she just recently wrote a book on uh, it 's not her most recent book, but she it 's what I probably how I came across her um, called Trauma Escapes where she visited um, different different areas around the world and investigated the the idea behind trauma um, and how a, how the place exists after that aspect so whether it's whether it 's um, um, Berlin or Port Arthur um, um, Srebrenica, she would visit these these areas and um, research the events and and actually just understand what sorrow and loss and the trauma of the actual situation itself um, has had and how that operates after after the fact it 's really. It's an amazing book, and she's an amazing person. Um, and she's, I think, like what we spoke about. She's from a similar generation, so it's kind of interesting mm. to have that have that aspect. But, but, having said that, though, like, you know, history is just something that repeats itself anyway. You know, um, whether it's genocide in in um, World War Two or or Srebrenica or Rwanda or you know. Could have been Libya. Who knows? But.
1: Well, I guess your earlier works have sort of talk, spoken about sort of specific um, incidents within certain cultures. Yeah, yeah. Um, as her work is sort of talking through example, I guess, about trauma and geography. Yeah. I guess the two kind of coalescing now that you're trying to sort of speak more universally or globally, more broadly. Sure,
4: sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, that, I think those previous works, whether you're familiar with them or not, I, I, they're just sort of accounts of specific events that happened um, locally, whether that be just nationally, locally. Um, And my research, you know, was pretty intensive in relation to those events, but unpacking that and and unpacking the media behind that, whereas now it's probably trying to get a bit more broad in Mm -hmm. that sense. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next.
1: Too true, too true. Um... And a final question for for all of you. Um, Last week, as I mentioned, when we were speaking with um, artists who were visiting from both overseas and Perth and Sydney, we spoke about the experience of new and I guess making a major work for a gallery, which is sort of quite substantial in its architectural bearing and scale. Um, Three Melbourne-based artists, all of you actually working quite intensively and for long periods, often on a single work or body of work. And knowing the Acker space quite well, I wondered if each of you would be happy or comfortable to perhaps reflect a little bit on, you know, being involved, I suppose, in the commissioning process at this kind of stage in your careers. Considering this is kind of the way you, you know, that sort of time frame is more kind of conducive to how you work in your own practices.
4: I found it problematic. But that was—I mean, there's so many, there's so many different issues that. that I think uh, you should
1: take the opportunity to unpack that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it was problematic that that my initial plan for for this show um, just didn't, just wasn't realised simply because of time management and the scale of the of the project. I think um, all I know that the opportunity here is is. Um, you know, re- at the base level reaching visitor numbers. I could have, I could have the same show at, at an artist-run space like TCB or something, and maybe I get maximum 400 people there over the, the entire journey, maximum. But here it's just, and, and even this, to, to even set up this and have a talk, you, you just don't get those opportunities unless you are, you know, in this, in this um, institution as well as I used to work on uh, as an installer. And I also have to say thank you to the installers of this show. Yes, brilliant. They did an amazing job. Um, they're very
1: good. one, especially <laughs> up there.
4: And um, you, don't, you don't get to work with installers, but, but working as an installer, you, you get to see how people use the space here, which is... You know, it actually becomes quite an interesting task to deal with. So I, I also enjoyed that. That aspect, like I had ideas straight away as to what what layout I was going to do, and even when it changed th- th- the next was just as exciting as the first idea yeah so and i I put that down to more so being an installer and having a having a sense of the space knowledge of the space yeah yeah,
1: yeah. and space I imagine was a big yeah
4: influence
2: very similar for you. to Mark with the working on the install side of things. Here and other places, and um, also just having that initial idea and being um, accommodated to go a, a little bit larger than normal and with a lot more detail, and also given the time frame to realise that as well was really good.
1: It doesn't all have to be positive. There is room to kind of like talk about them all.
2: Well, it was positive. Oh, so that's well, a I'm <laughs> um, Well, I
3: guess I, I feel I was probably, you know, a cast somewhat differently to everybody else because my whole project got realised. I think, um, you know, I was still working up to the minute, which is, sorry, anyone can't hear me, which is generally how I work because, um, otherwise I'd still want to keep working on yes. it. Um, I mean, my project was generously supported by the City of Melbourne, so without their encouragement and support, as long along with that, my scope of my project would just not have been delivered, but it was an interesting experience. I, I had a tiler and architect working on a laptop right up until the last minute yeah. tiling. Um, I had a photographer, Documenting, I think, just the day before, that was rushed to the photographic lab and then rushed to the intense. Yeah, it was it was it was was very intense and certainly not for the faint-hearted. I think. (laughs) This is is true. um, I think in that week, I think I was describing to uh, Jess Johnson last night that it's um, you experience install with a group of strangers and you behave in a way where you probably don't want to behave unless you're around family <laughs> and you don't know these people and you want to <laughs> say something very sharply or whistle or, you know, get someone's attention. It's just not possible because it's um, it's very it's a very tight deadline actually. It's really three days and three days for such an enormous amount of activity to take place and, and everybody's nerves are... Uh, a high. But and I, tired. Know, yeah. And, and everyone's
4: exhausted. Hannah's and thinking, welcome to my world.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that's just, mm. you know, it, it's, that's just how it is. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an experience.
1: Well, I suppose, I mean, I think one of the, the real pluses of new is sort of having this 12 months to develop a work and the conversations and a relationship with the curator and the institution. And, um, you know, they don't come along as often as they should within one's career, I think, both for a curator and for an artist, really. Um, and, you know, I'm certain you will have more of them, no doubts about it, but I, you know, I hope the, um, the first experience has been a, a good one. Mm. I think we're all, um, I don't know, I definitely know that I really haven't had much time to reflect so much on no. the whole process, but I really appreciate the fact that you've come here tonight and offered quite a lot in terms of the work and the experience itself, so thank you.
0: Thank you. <laughs> OK, we've got a little bit of time for a couple of quick questions. I'll bring the mic to you. So just put your hand up if you've got a burning question.
3: I, I've been really interested to hear you this evening talking about your work and, and it's like your philosophers. <laughs> It just comes across as so much philosophy in what you're doing. I just wonder what your response is to that,
1: please. Dan, you must have a philosophy on life.
2: Um, Dan's danerisms. Really, it's really putting me on the spot.
4: Um, <laughs> Mark. I think I think what I think what Dan's trying to say is maybe we've got a lot of time on our hands. Um, and I think you know
1: but never enough at the same time <laughs> no well,
4: not because we need to support ourselves financially, mm. um, so obviously we need we need to work, but I think well for me my my priority obviously is my practice, so there's a lot of thinking time um, the problem the problem there I find though, is that sometimes um, I could. I could quite easily get caught up in my own ideas and therefore somewhat um, remove myself from um, the greater whole and then I end up just like a dog chasing its own tail in my studio, so um, maybe having to work, having to do paid work gets you out gets you out of the studio good, good balance. otherwise you go insane. Mm. but I'm far from philosophy, yeah. yeah.
1: I um, actually I do have a friend who's moved to um, London late last year to undertake some postgraduate curatorial studies, of which she withdrew after three months to undertake a philosophy degree, and I think that's very wise. I mean that's really where the value um, I think in the work that we all do lies. No, a good observation.
0: Must have been a very comprehensive talk, yeah. and it's probably appropriate that we finish on this idea of philosophy because, the fact, as anything, it's really an incubator for philosophies. Um, and we're finding this even with really little kids um, that come into the exhibition space and pose incredible questions and provide us with very astonishing moments, even from, from prep right through to year 12. Um, I want to thank our wonderful curator Hannah and also Fiona, Dan, and Mark for their ideas and comments tonight. And, um, of course, next week we've got our final and third week um, for the new 11 public program series. We have the guys from Greatest Hits and Tim Costa, So Sound Installations and Frozen Aliens. We'll see you then. Thanks for coming.